Well, we've been in a series of messages entitled, What to Wear, and it comes from three little verses uh, from the book of Colossians chapter 3. And when we started into this series, I kind of thought why uh, the Holy Spirit was leading us into this series was related primarily to the pandemic, that these are the kind of things that we need to wear, the kind of clothes that we need to wear because of the pandemic. But as often the case, the Holy Spirit has more in mind than sometimes we realize which is actually very good news, that sometimes we think we know what he's doing, but he's doing way more than we ever dreamed that he was doing. And he's been doing that. And I think part of the reason that he's had us in this series and in this text is because of some of the racial injustice that we've been witnessing. And I want to be very clear about something. It's not just that our country is becoming divided. What's happening is the divisions are being revealed. And on Tuesday evening, I was blessed to be able to sit in a circle and talk to African-American members of our church and able to listen to their stories. And I'm not going to tell your stories because they're not mine to tell at this point. But I began to listen to some of the stories of their experiences, not out there, in here, in the church. And not just any church, in in our church. And, and I got to tell you, you know, I've always felt like New Life, we were kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of things. And I think we probably are. I mean, we're, you know, we're pretty good looking. We're pretty smart, you know. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we're just being, if you're a visitor, look at us. I mean, you know, we're, but my heart was broken as I heard some of the stories. And I just, I just got to believe I just got to believe that if some of you would have been with me in that circle and you heard what I heard, I, I, feel like, I feel like some of you would be more careful about what you put on Facebook. I, I knew it was going to get quiet. Uh, and that, that's okay. Because I, I just feel if you, if you had heard some of the stories that I heard, I, I just feel like maybe you would be more measured and how you said things. Like you might be more concerned about coming around people um, who are hurting. And, and a lot of times it, it's not on purpose. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a kind of a tone deafness that we have. Sometimes um, as white people, and look, I'm not coming down on white people, okay? Um, I married a white person. <laughs> my children are white. My parents are white. It occurs to me I'm white too. But you know what, as white people, sometimes we have a tone deafness. We, we don't even understand some of the things that we're saying because we haven't lived that experience. And so what we're going to do around here in the upcoming weeks and months is we're going to expand that circle. Okay, we're going to expand it. There's going to be different ways, and you're going to hear about different strategies moving forward because it wasn't just, uh, you know, to hear the stories, uh, just to hear the stories. Although we gotta, that's where we got to start, but it was to move forward with healing. Hey, guys, what would it be like? If the church led the way in racial healing and reconciliation in our nation. And, and I know sometimes that feels like that's not possible. But do you know what Jesus said? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I really believe that God wants to do something here at New Life, here in our city, here in our country, that is going to change so that our future is different than our past. 
And so we're being invited into that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 3. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Colossians 3, verses 12 12 to 14. And if you haven't memorized it by now, I hope that you will memorize this text. By the way, I know a lot of times these days we don't talk much about Scripture memorization, but memorizing the Word of God is one of the best things you can do in spiritual warfare. I mean, Jesus set the example. When, when, When Satan was tempting him, how did he respond? With the Word of God. He quoted the Scriptures. And so Scripture memory is very important. And so we have this little chart for these, for these scriptures. Uh, and if you just remember this chart, you remember these three verses, right? It says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's who you are, right? Remember, Paul starts with who you are first. Since you are that, clothe yourselves. In other words, put on, you know, this is what you wear, compassion. A few weeks ago, Phil talked about how compassion is love in action. It's not love that just says, oh, I bet that really hurts. See ya. No, that's not, that's not compassion. Compassion is love in action. Kindness. And Kevin talked about how it's, that's a strong center with soft edges. and Humility. Dad talked about it last week about putting others in front of yourself. And then it says gentleness and patience and forgive one another. Whatever grievances you have, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. He said love is like the belt that ties all of these things together. Now, as we've noticed, and we're going to keep doing this week after week, we've noticed in previous week that who you are section comes before here's how you dress. Because how you dress is determined by who you are. And we said the big idea was that behavior follows identity. Who you believe you are will affect and control how you behave, right? So we need to start with who we are. We are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Max Lucado, in his book, A Love Worth Giving, he talks about how you have to receive the love of God before you're able to give the love of God. And he talks about uh, 1 John 4. There's a place there where the apostle John spends three sentences telling us how much God loves us. He's like, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And then he takes just one sentence to say, now go love other people. And here's what he writes. Our tendency as preachers is to tell the church, now go love people. Love your neighbor, love your wife, love your husband, love your kids, without being sure we've told them how much they are loved. Here's a parallel. When you reach for the sponge that you're going to use to wipe the counter off, the first thing you do is get the sponge wet. Because until you do, the sponge is crispy and crusty and hard and brittle. You can't use that sponge for anything until you get it wet. What I'm suggesting is that people come to us with crusty, brittle, hard hearts. So then for me to say, take that hard heart and go love somebody with that heart is asking the impossible. It's just not going to happen. My job is to help that person receive the moisture of God's love to be immersed into God's grace and forgiveness. Then that heart changes. It becomes pliable and moist, and it really becomes a tool that God can use to love others. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. You are loved more than you ever dreamed Beyond what you can ever imagine, the heavenly father of all that is, the guy who created everything that you see, loves you with an everlasting love. And it's a love without strings. Regardless of the payback, you can't earn it. It is freely bestowed. And guess what? It's eternal. 
It's without it. Enjoy this with me. Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And that's who we are, you guys. We are his children. 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. I mean, this whole thing about God's love was so important to Paul, it, it consumed his prayer life. He prayed, and he wrote this in the Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Do you see what he's saying? If you could just get it, if you could just get it, how much you're loved. And if you could know this, he says, and to know this, not know about this love, but to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you would be, look at the rest of the sentence, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see the connection there? You want to be filled to the full measure of you. You got to understand God's love. You got to know. You got to let it in. You are. Is anybody getting anything from this? Uh, you are loved by God Himself. And some of you struggle with that. I know because I know you. It's a lifelong battle for you when God's love and his grace and his mercy is extended. When forgiveness is offered to you, you say, oh, that is what I need. But as soon as it comes, you push it away. Because you, some of you have a real hard time allowing grace into your life because you think you have to, to deserve it. Listen, if you wait until you deserve it, when it comes, it won't be grace. If you deserve it, it isn't mercy. If it isn't free, it isn't grace. But you never really let it in, do you? I know because, I, look, I'm talking from experience. This is a constant battle for me to allow the gospel to transform how I see myself. Because sometimes there's a lot of Christians, a lot of us, who are walking around with a truckload of shame and guilt and regret. And you never really feel clean. And you never really let yourself feel complete. And you never really let yourself feel fully forgiven. It's like you just feel mostly forgiven. With apologies, you know, for another quote from the Princess Bride. You remember when uh, uh, Nigo Matoya and Fezzik are going to storm the castle, but they need Wesley. But unfortunately, Wesley's dead. So they take him to the doctor, played by Billy Crystal. And Billy Crystal says he's just mostly dead. He's not all dead. The big difference between mostly dead and all dead. You remember that scene? Yeah, yeah. Raise your hand if you remember that scene. No, I'm talking about most of you. Okay. If you've been coming to church very long, you've, you've heard me tell the movie. Okay. There's a big difference between mostly forgiven and all forgiven. And Scripture says you're all forgiven. In fact, some of, you, some, of, some of you have this thing so twisted that if you really did just bask in the grace of God, if you really did just bask in the mercy of God and feel clean like you are and feel complete like you are, you would feel guilty for letting yourself feel that way. Why? Because you think you got to deserve it, and all heaven weeps as it says, that's the point. You don't deserve it. You can't ever deserve it. I'm giving you a gift. See, if you know the Lord, this is who you are, chosen, holy, dearly loved. Do you have any idea who you are? 
maybe you've heard the story of the Dalits, which is a, 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 one of the lowest caste in, in the caste system in India. They're also known as the untouchables. And for quite some time in India, in the caste system, uh, in certain parts of India, in certain times of India, it was required by Hindu law that each person who was a Dalit and untouchable must be given a single name, and it had to be derogatory. So, like, ugly, or dung, or stupid. Can you imagine? That you have to have this name, and that's who you're called, and you begin to live according to your name. And then imagine the transformation that came when, when, when they discovered, the Dallas discovered that in Jesus, God came as a Dalit. He was an outsider. I mean, that's what Christmas is. His birth was illegitimate, according to everybody else that was there. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. He was outside in the country. His birth wasn't announced to kings and things like that. It was announced to shepherds, outsiders. And imagine when the Dallas recognized that Jesus was one of them and that he had the power to rename them. And when he renamed them, here's what he called them, chosen. Holy, dearly loved. See, some, some of us, you know what we do? We live like spiritual Dalits even though we're children of the king. Remember who you are. You've been renamed. The world and the devil will love to put a name on you. You've been renamed. And this is who you are. And since you are that, now, since you are that, you are chosen, you're holy, and you're dearly loved. Here's how you dress, okay? Here's what you wear. You clothe yourselves today with gentleness. That's where we are. Gentleness. Now, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, a grace that we don't often think about. In fact, George uh, Bethune, who was a Dutch Reformed pastor, wrote in uh, 1839 the following. There may be no grace less prayed for or cultivated than gentleness. I'll read that again. He said, there may be no grace less prayed for or cultivated than gentleness. And we might say, 181 years later, not much has changed. Right? We don't, we don't seek out the fruit of gentleness very often. I mean, when was the last time you asked God to work gentleness in you? To, to, to work that in you? I mean, and why do you think that is? Like, why do we, when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, we think of love, joy, and peace. And when we pray, I, I, and I do this all the time. When I pray over my wife, over my children, over this church, I pray for love, joy, and peace. The fruit of the Spirit, you know, let us be full of the Spirit and have the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, and peace. But we don't often talk about gentleness or ask for gentleness. Why is that? And why would we talk about that today? Well, let's see if we can answer that. So I, I got two questions I want to answer, and this is my outline for the few remaining minutes that I have. Question number one, what is gentleness? And question number two, what difference does it make? Okay, so what is gentleness and what difference does it make? Because some of you are thinking, I don't think it makes that big a difference. I'm talking to you, right? Number one, what is gentleness? The Greek word translated gentleness is also in the older translations it translated meekness or meek. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you hear the word meek? Just in our culture today, what, what, what word kind of pops in your mind when you think of somebody who's meek? You think of weak, right? You think of a pushover, you know, maybe somebody who's passive, you know, quiet. You might want to go fishing with meek, 
but you don't want him on your football team. Right? My little brother, when he was in high school, he had a t-shirt. I think it was by Nike, I think. And it said, the meek shall inherit the earth, but they won't get the ball. And it was a picture of Charles Barkley. I think it was Charles Barkley. Yeah, yeah. They ain't getting the ball. That's how we kind of see it, right? I might go pick flowers with meek. But when I go into war, I don't want meek covering my back. At least that's kind of how we think. I, I mean, and so some of you are thinking, really, gentleness? I don't, I don't, I don't think I really want that. When you come to the scriptures, however, meekness takes on a totally different tone because we're told Jesus was meek, and he don't seem very weak to me. I mean, if you were to look it up in the lexicon, if you were to take a Greek lexicon and look up the word, the definition that you get is gentle, kind, or mild. That doesn't help me much either because I don't even know if I was, I still don't know if I want that. Why should I be meek? What is very helpful, however, is to look how the words are used. See, if you really want to know what, how, what a word means, don't just look it up in the dictionary. Look at the other words that it hangs out with. How is it used in context? And it's used in context three different ways. The first way is to describe a gentle, refreshing breeze. Have you ever known somebody like that? Have you ever known somebody who's just, just kind of refreshing to be around, you know? I mean, they're real, but they're not rough. They're just kind of refreshing. It's also used to, to describe a soothing medicine, kind of that, that, that it's put on and it's gentle as it goes on and it, and it soothes the wounds. Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever, have you ever been around somebody that just, just kind of made you feel better? When you left their presence, you just, it was just kind of a gentle healing. But there's a third way, and this third way is actually the way that the word meek is most, of the, most often used in the Bible, and it's defined as power under control. This is what it means to be gentle or to be meek. It's power under control. And the way it was used in Greek literature was of a, a wild stallion. Okay, you got this wild stallion. Who, and, 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 you know, a wild stallion is strong, right? I mean, they, they can step on you. They can kick you in the head, and you'd be dead. I'm like, they're like strong animals. But if you take that same wild stallion and you train it, a trained horse has got all the power of a wild stallion, but it's under control. And in fact, it was used of Roman war horses in particular because, you know, in, in hand-to-hand combat back in those days, you know, it was really loud, right? And sometimes a horse could get spooked, you know, if it's really, really loud. And so, they, yeah, I mean, you got swords and shields banging and people screaming and yelling, probably saying bad words and, you know, shooting arrows. And some horses could maybe get spooked, but these Roman war horses so well-trained that they would wait. And they, I mean, they got all the power of a wild horse, but they would wait until the commander spoke. And when they heard the voice of the commander, that's when they moved. That's power under control. One scholar put it this way, it must be clearly understood, therefore, that the meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he can't help himself. But the Lord was meek because he had infinite resources of God at his command. Right? So, I mean, Jesus could have called down fire from heaven. In fact, on one occasion, a a, a village rejected him and the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, you want us to call fire down? And Jesus didn't say, no, you know, I can't really do that. He didn't say that. He just said, you you knucklehead, you, you missed the whole point. But it wasn't that he couldn't do it. I mean, on one occasion, what is it, in Matthew uh, 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 26, Jesus said, look, if I, write, if I just talk to my father right now, I could call 12 legions of angels down right now. 
And a legion of angels, a legion in, in the Roman military was between four and 6,000. So I, I could have just called him down right now. He had, what was, it was power under control. Let me, let me try to illustrate it again this way. Uh, 1981, we moved uh, to Louisville. We, we moved into Finley Avenue. And just down the street was a young man named Kevin Wu. And we got to be good friends. It's 1981. And we played sports outside. We rode bikes. We did everything. But one of the things we did was we played kung fu. We did, it was like we were like, we didn't, we didn't know kung fu, but we had seen Bruce Lee movies. And we used to play, and you know, you had to be somebody, and he got to be, you know, Bruce Lee, and I had to be um, Chuck Norris. And, and, that's what, and you know, Chuck Norris is cool and all, but everybody knows that in The Way of the Dragon, Bruce Lee killed Chuck Norris. But I had to be Chuck Norris. But what we would do is we would play, you know, and we'd do all the, you know, and just like, like we're going to beat each other up and things like that. And it was a lot of fun. Um, but everybody wanted to be Bruce Lee. Well, just this week, we sat down and we watched that, that new documentary on 30 for 30 called Be Water, which is about Bruce Lee. Right? It's a story. And while we're watching it, we're, we're sitting there watching it, and it occurs to me, this is an example of power under control. I mean, at one point, he's swinging his fist so fast, you can't even hardly see him. And, and he's doing a demonstration, and, he, and he's throwing fists right at this guy's nose, but he's stopping right in front of the nose, and the guy's kind of like jerking back like he's going to keep getting hit. And Bruce Lee says, no, it's okay. I got it under control. Power in those I mean, he had a one-inch punch where he did this thing where... It knocked somebody down just one inch away from him. It was crazy. It was power under control. And then there was one point where he's experiencing a lot of racial slurs and a lot of racism against him. And we're sitting there, and, and Nathaniel says, he could beat up everybody in that room. Like the people who are looking down on him, he could have beat them up like at the same time. He could have beat them all up, but he didn't. You know what that is? That's power under control. Meekness. See, a meek person is a powerful person. They don't have to bring attention to themselves because they know who they are. As Christians, we know who we are in Christ. They don't think too highly of themselves, but they don't also berate themselves because people who perpetually put themselves down aren't meek. A.W. Tozer says it this way in his book, The Pursuit of God, a book I would commend to you. He says, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. On second thought, I think I want to be meek. Don't you? Now, I'm not so naive as to believe that one sermon on meekness is going to make you meek. Because that's not how this works. According to Galatians 5, meekness is a fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. Right? Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, meekness. 
So when we're full of the Spirit, when we're, when we're living by the Spirit, when we're walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, one of the things that's going to come out, the fruit of that is going to be a gentleness. It's going to be power under control. A power that can bring healing to a church, to a city, to a nation, to the earth. So let's look at what difference does it make. And I'll be very quickly, go very quickly with this. The last question, what difference does it make? Like, so what? Who cares? How does that affect me this afternoon? There are three things. Number one, gentleness disarms conflict. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Right? A gentle answer turns away wrath. See, we tend to, here's what we tend to do. We tend to mimic each other's emotions, right? And, and there's actually a physiological reason for this because scientists have discovered we have these mirror neurons in our brain that mirror the emotions or the actions of the person in front of us, right? And so if somebody comes at us and they're angry, how do we tend to respond? Anger. We, t- we tend to get angry back. If they raise their voice, we raise our voice. If they, if they get ugly, we get ugly. If they, if they get aggressive, we get aggressive because we're kind of built this way. But when that happens, when people, when people start yelling at each other and, they, and everything escalates, there's no dialogue. And if there's no dialogue, there's almost never any change. Never any change if there's not real true dialogue. So, here, so here's a little tip. Just based on this, this is a little tip. When you're talking to somebody and they start raising their voice, you lower yours. Somebody comes at you aggressive, you, you be calm. They raise their voice, you lower yours. Because remember, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And, and sometimes, you know what I have to do? I have to tell myself, you know what? I don't have to win this argument right this second. I can play the long game here. Because every single time, this is my own experience, okay, every single time I have responded out of anger, I regret it. So gentleness disarms, it's not, gentleness is not weakness, it's power under control, and it disarms conflict. That's number one. Number two, gentleness is a witness to unbelievers. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Do you see what Peter is saying right there? See, a lot of times, you guys, I think Christianity doesn't get a fair hearing because of how we come across. Sometimes it's offensive just what we believe is offensive to people, but sometimes it's not that at all. It's how we come across. Because sometimes as Christians, we just kind of sound angry and outraged. And, and, and that comes across as uncaring to people who are hurting. And so what we really need, man, in our culture, we need a winsome apologetic, one, one that, that people look at and, and, and see, and they, and they see gentleness. And they see care coming out. This is huge in, in, in the issues of racial injustice right now. A lot of people in the world think that we are the church are, are just mad about rioting and we're not upset about murder. Some people think that. So, so what? So we, we need to communicate in a way they say, no, here's what we're for. 
They see a winsome apologetic. They see, they see gentleness coming at. And, and when that happens, people, unbelievers see that and they say, I want some of that. Third and finally, and I left this for the end because this is the most important here. Gentleness makes me like Jesus. Gentleness makes me like Jesus. Matthew 11 verse 29 says, learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And Jesus displays this kind of, this gentleness. In, in, in Matthew 12, verse 20, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And, and, and the picture there is, uh, they used to use reeds, and they would hollow them out, and they would use to play music. But if it was bruised, all there, what you could do is just break it and throw it away. And Jesus, what, they, what it's saying there about Jesus is, uh, for those of you who are bruised, he's not going to break you and throw you away. And what is a smoldering wick? A smoldering wick was one that used to be on fire. It used to be a flame, but now it's smoldering. And, and most of the time, you just kind of throw that out, but not Jesus. He's tender and he's gentle. And, and, and you see Jesus like in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 5. There's a dead girl, and he comes up to her, and he takes her by the hand, and he says, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic for, honey, it's time to wake up. And she's tender. And then a couple chapters later, there's a, a deaf mute, and he puts his fingers in his ears, and he sighs because he sees the pain and the suffering. Jesus is gentle, he's tender, and he says, be opened, and he gives him his hearing back. And in Mark 10, he enjoys the presence of little children. He's playing with kids, and he's holding them. And, he, and you say, well, of course, you know, but it, that wasn't common in that day. But he also had strength under control. I mean, he rebuked the Pharisees uh, because of their hardness of heart when he healed a man on the Sabbath. And they, were more care they cared more about the rule than they did healing the guy. And Jesus got kind of angry about that. He was angry with the disciples when they tried to stop the children from seeing him. He braided a whip and he ran money changers out of the temple. He called Peter Satan. Have you ever wanted to call somebody Satan? I mean, tell me the truth. Right? I'm just thinking, all right, I'm resisting Satan right now. Uh, I I've wanted to do, it doesn't feel very Christ-like, but Christ was the one who did it. So, I, I mean, Peter was trying to keep him from his mission. Here's the point. Jesus was gentle and tender, yes, and he was powerful, but it was power under control. So gentleness or meekness makes me like Jesus, which is part of the point, right? Where, where You don't just get saved so that you go to heaven when you die, right? You are supposed to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the point where you're to follow in his steps. A Christian is to be like Jesus. And when that happens, it changes the world. And you go, okay, Tim, okay, now you're being a little grandiose. You know, I know where you get there. Um, a little over the top. Let me tell you. No, it's not over the top. If anything, I'm underselling it. Because Jesus said this. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I used to think that was a promise exclusively for like the end of time, you know, when, when Christ returns and there's the consummation of his kingdom and we have a new heavens and a new earth. At that point, the meek are going to have an inheritance and it's going to be the earth. And I think that's true, and that is great, but I think there's something else. Something very this-worldly that is a promise to the gentle, to the meek. And I was helped by this week to discover that by reading uh, part of a book by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. And he talks about meeting two different groups of people. 
And these two different groups of people were the stars that were popular and everybody knew about them, and then the servants who were out serving and the difference he saw in them. And here's what he writes. My career as a journalist has afforded me opportunities to interview stars, including NFL football greats, movie actors, music performers, best-selling authors, politicians, and TV personalities. These are the people who dominate the media. We fawn over them, pouring over the minutia of their lives, the clothes they wear, the food they eat, the aerobic routines they follow, the people they love, the toothpaste they use. Yet I must tell you that in my limited experience, I have found this principle to hold true. Our idols are as miserable a group of people as I've ever met. Most have troubled or broken marriages, nearly all incurably dependent on psychotherapy, and in a heavy irony, these larger-than-life heroes seem tormented by self-doubt. I have also spent time with people I call servants, doctors and nurses who work among the ultimate outcasts, leprosy patients in rural India, a Princeton graduate who runs a hotel for the homeless in Chicago, health workers who have left high-paying jobs to serve in a backwater town of Mississippi, Relief workers in Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, and other repositories of human suffering. The PhDs I met in Arizona who are now scattered throughout the jungles of South America translating the Bible into obscure languages. I was prepared to honor and admire these servants, to hold them up as inspiring examples. I was not prepared to envy them. Yet as I now reflect on the two groups side by side, stars and servants, the servants clearly emerge as the favored ones, the graced ones. Without question, I would rather spend time among these servants than among the stars. They possess qualities of depth and richness and even joy that I've not found elsewhere. Servants work for low pay, long hours, and no applause, wasting their talents and skills among the poor and the uneducated. Somehow, though, in the process of losing their lives, they find them. The poor in spirit and the meek are indeed blessed, I now believe. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and it is they who will inherit the earth. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with gentleness. 